Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And we have Emily. Um, <laughs> as every every uh, every month, we have a less interesting person. Emily, <laughs> just just kidding. Emily is one of our most interesting interesting people. She's a fellow with us at IW. Um, she is also uh, the culture editor over at The Federalist. She is half of Counterpoints with Breaking Points, one of the most popular po- political podcasts in America. Um, she is with Young America's Foundation. Uh, she wears many, many hats, and you've seen her in many, many places. Um, welcome back, Emily. Thanks, Inez. It's great to be here. I look forward to it every month. We should uh, get a, we should get a title for you, Least Interesting. Yes. Least interesting person. You should actually just, uh, for, for my segments, introduce it as where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people, but today we're joined by Emily Jashinsky. <laughs> as Not a brand, and, but... Yeah. As a break from uh, our interesting lineup. Um, no, Emily is very interesting. That's why uh, I'm so pleased to have her back every month to talk about some of the developments. And we have quite a few developments this month. Um, but I really wanted to kick off the show by talking about um, two things that seem to me, two recent events that um, really frame the discussion about where uh, sort of where the future generations of America are, are headed. Um, and why that is the case, why the trajectory that they're on is the case. Um, the first is a recent, um, let's call it mostly peaceful riot in a Queens high school uh, where uh, one of the teachers in her private time on, on her private page, Facebook page, um, she went to a pro-Israel rally uh, and then posted a picture of herself saying, I stand with Israel. Uh, this this created a basically a riot. I mean, sinks were ripped off the bathroom walls, tiles smashed um, of students parading through this high school, which, by the way, is in the bottom 40 of, of New York City's uh, something like uh, 600 high schools or 700 high schools, something like that. It's in the bottom 40 or 50. So this is not a high school that is uh, performing well at its primary mandate. Um, and so there were these riots. The students were rampaging through the halls. Uh, the police were called, and actually this teacher was shoved into a closet and the door locked to protect her from from the students rioting um, in, in the school. So we have this this episode of violence. There have been a couple arrests made uh, under public pressure. Initially, they were just going to uh, suspend some of the the main perpetrators. There was pressure publicly. It seems the police are going to arrest some of these kids. So that's that's point one. And the second point is if we reach back to all the way like 10 days ago, which feels like a very long time ago, um, there was, of course, this Osama bin Laden letter to America that went completely viral on TikTok. Not clear how much of that was algorithmic on the part of this Chinese app. Um, that being said, there sure were a lot of American teenagers who were um, reading this letter, which I remember reading at the time um, when it was released, uh, this letter from Osama bin Laden just laying out his reasons for attacking America. Apparently, a not insubstantial percentage of, of American young people find this to be, you know, they, they think, think that Osama bin Laden has a, has a point uh, in, in why he murdered three 3,000 American civilians on 9-11. Um, to me, these these two incidents uh, show increasingly, along with all of the other, um, again, mostly peaceful protests that have blocked roads, have resulted in, in a not small number of, of minor league violent incidents, and then up to major league violent incidents with the death of a man out in, in um, Southern California and one of these protests. So I uh, it seems to me that that what's happened is this has become the the latest cause du jour 
uh, of of sort of the young and violent left, um, following on the heels of BLM, following on the heels of climate change. Um, some of these, I think Greta Thunberg is uh, now big into free Palestine, which I think is a, a symbolic switchover. Um, so I guess with all of that, I wanted to ask you a couple things um, to kick off the discussion. One, you know, have we, is this now plug and play? Do we just have this sort of permanent revolutionary class um, that can be sent out into the streets to riot, depending on, you know, whatever the message goes out, the hashtag goes out, that's the new issue of the day, because it sure seems like it, because it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of overlap between, uh, you know, <laughs> demanding that uh, women be called, uh, or men be called women, and uh, the, the Palestinian uh, cause and climate change, um, but we seem to see the same faces on the streets over and over and over again with all of these uh, issues. And the second one is, um, you know, how much of this is domestic? In other words, uh, how much of this is domestic indoctrination of schools for the last 30 years that we've talked about many times? Um, and how much of it is the introduction of, of new technologies? How much of it is that, you know, TikTok and its algorithm are very powerful and controlled by one of America's the preeminent geopolitical foe of America, the CCP. I mean, what what's the balance of those things? So you, you can you could start at any point of that discussion, but we'll we'll get both questions in by the end. No, I'm actually fascinated by this uh, this example of the Bin Laden letter on TikTok, but we'll broaden it beyond that because uh, people have done studies showing the Stand with Palestine hashtag is just astronomically more popular on TikTok than the Stand with Israel hashtag uh, since October 7th. Like actually that studies were coming out within a couple of weeks of what happened on October 7th about uh, the, the popularity of these hashtags and these causes on TikTok. And the Washington Post, when the Bin Laden letter came out, did one of the most just fascinating autopsies of a viral trend that I have ever seen. They went and looked at Google Trends data. Other people looked at Google Trends data and showed that the Bin Laden letter was getting more and more attention uh, on Google searches um, before the TikTok trend. Then when Yashar Ali tweeted about the TikTok trend, he went and pulled a compilation video of probably about 10, maybe a little less, TikTok users uh, talking about Bin Laden. Then the Bin Laden letter just skyrocketed um, in popularity, which is, again, like really interesting because I think it, it shows us both things are true at the same time. One is that uh, our divisions are are fueling some really bad ideological trends. Uh, and the other is that our adversaries are very easily exploiting those divisions. So, you know, the to the extent Russia did genuinely interfere with the 2016 election, uh, which was laughably minor compared to what the left uh, claimed it was for years and years and years, and the media claimed it was for years and years and years and years, they were basically creating these hilariously crude Facebook memes and putting some money behind them to exploit American divisions on things like transgender ideology and Black Lives Matter. And I think that China and even some experts in the field will say China is learning from Russia. Um, and so the fact that the CCP has access to TikTok data that we know has that access has been used. Forbes has reported this. Uh, the, the fact that they have access to TikTok via ByteDance, its parent company, which is, which is based in Beijing and staffed by members of the Chinese Communist Party, tells us that it's it's probably true 
that they are easily exploiting these divisions. But I think it's really, 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 really important to remember. Um, A, you know, we should not give them access to exploit these divisions. It's insane that we act like it's just there's nothing we can do about it. On the other hand, um, as you cover a lot, Inez, these divisions exist because of decades worth of indoctrination. These uh, indoctrination, but also, you know, it's it's indoctrination almost takes away the agency from kids, um, you know, from, from kids who are now running C-suites and media companies, um, decades of manipulation, decades of info wars from the left that have succeeded. And I actually think it sort of undercuts the conservative cause and the even the sort of sane centrist cause to put this all on China and say those kids in Queens rioted because China has been poisoning their minds. It's important to be outraged that we are allowing China to poison their minds. It is also important to be outraged that we've allowed them to lose uh, a sort of rock solid moral foundation uh, and to not have that rock solid moral foundation. I think technology plays a part in it. Um, you know, no question about it. Uh, I also think, you know, and, and by the way, in, in a way that becomes plug and play to your point, Inez, like the catalytic converters, it's plug and play, by the way, through TikTok. Like people learn how to do this stuff on TikTok. It became a TikTok trend. Like people were putting that stuff everywhere. Uh, so I think some of it's plug and play, but I also think the ground is fertile. Um, and and to lose sight of that, it sort of worries me that conservatives scapegoat China on these issues when they're just sort of harvesting uh, from very fertile ground. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. Um, <clears throat> because, you know, <laughs> think about teenagers in 1983 in America, right? Um, you know, had there been the equivalent of, of the Osama bin Laden letter, just a very anti-American tract, let's say, um, written by, I don't know, the Communist Party of one of these minor you know, uh, satellites, for example, um, of the Soviet Union, uh, had that that been placed in front of even millions of American teenagers, right? The percentage of them who would have found it persuasive would have been so much lower. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it struck me some of the, and, and it's really interesting, by the way, that that the response, and it does speak to a sort of, uh, you know, a cycle that's really good for media, whereby you know we pull we pull some examples, a sort of lib- libs of TikTok TikTok style. You know, and there's a whole ecosystem around that now, and there's a demand for that kind of content. And and actually, in this case, it seems like from from your autopsy that you were talking about, um, the response played a large role in further escalating the trend and driving people to read this letter. But I'm I'm really struck by the the few that I've seen, um, the shock that these kids have, and it's all related. And upon reading this letter. Because it, it really is sort of the last piece of, of pro-American, um, they would call it propaganda, of course, um, that that anyone who's uh, under a certain age received, right? It was sort of the last pro-American moment. Mm-hmm. And I've talked many times about how in Palo Alto and uh, parts of, you know, sort of elite leftist circles, it already wasn't that. It already wasn't that moment of unity. But for most of the country... Um, that was sort of this last pro-American moment of unity. And so what they had, as I remember, you know, being that age, that was my thinking as well, is sort of this entire worldview that was anti-American, 
Um, and then this little bit, and not that I was anti-American when I was a kid, I should clarify. I, I was simply like, when I you're young, you, you sort of have like disparate pieces of information and you haven't really synthesized a worldview out of it. And you believe sometimes very contradictory things about, you know what I'm saying? Like when you're 17 or 16, you're, you read this one thing and you're like, oh, I really agree with that. And then you read a thing that actually contradicts it in some way. You're like, oh, I really agree with that. Right. Cause you haven't had enough experience to really synthesize a, a worldview. Um, what I was seeing in these videos was that these kids had this sort of background anti-Americanism, and then they're shocked to see that this one little piece of of uh, information that was in their brains from when they were like, let's say, you know, seven or eight years old um, about this attack on America, they're sort of shocked to see, oh wait, you know, Osama bin Laden has a lot of the same critiques that I've been hearing in all of my classes that I very much agree with, that all my friends agree with, that I see on TikTok, um, actually Osama bin Laden, you know, taps into some of those critiques of, you know, American foreign policy or, um, and anyway, there's a, there, like, it, it was interesting to me to watch that little like light go off for them because it was this last little piece, the, the last little bit of what was formerly the dominant view in America that, you know, this is may not be a perfect country, but it's a good one. The American system is the best in the world that, uh, you know, America does not, you know, sort of run around the world, you know, indiscriminately slaughtering people because we feel like it, right? Um, that, that American foreign policy, that generally America has been good for the world, um, that Pax Americana has been a, go a good thing, um, that Americans fight after being smacked, so on, right? Like uh, all, all of these sort of baseline and, and of course, of course, like real American history is more complicated than that. But that, that like that that baseline compass that this is a good country, that we are generally a good force in the world. Um, those things were long gone. And there was just this little kind of island of information by itself in these kids brains. Oh, like, but we were the victims on 9-11. And then when they read this this letter, like, oh, well, maybe that's wrong, too. And, and actually, maybe I need to synthesize Osama bin Laden's view into this larger anti-American view that I hold. Yeah, and I, I think we've talked about this before. Um, it, I do think the reason, uh, there are a lot of reasons, but I think there is a serious problem with the way we, a lot of things obviously, but specifically the Cold War and I think the way that we teach the Cold War makes it really, really easy. Uh, it's the same thing with like how we teach Columbus, uh, whatever else it is. You sort of, uh, I think it makes it really easy for Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky to swoop in and convince people, and Osama bin Laden apparently, to swoop in and convince students that you know because they're pointing out new an unflattering facts about the United States that invalidates the entire narrative about the United States. You know, you're taught as an American that the U S is a force for good. What if I told you that the CIA assassinated John F. Kennedy? What if I told you that the U S was complicit in, uh, you know, the cleansing uh, the ethnic cleansing of people in El Salvador. What if I told you that the U.S. funded the Mujahideen and radicalized or fueled the radicalization of uh, you, Muslims in Afghanistan? 
Sure. What if you told me that? Well, uh, you know, I can see how learning that information and learning it as though it's a forbidden truth, something we can't talk about. Um, you know, when you have a when you haven't heard these things before, it does seem like well, everything I know about the U.S. is false. Um, but what we lose sight of is that we are living in, and this is probably the broader thing of like what we we teach that's wrong. Uh, about so many aspects of history. This is like the big catch-all. Um, we are living in the strangest century that has ever occurred in the history of the human people. We are the pioneers of living amongst each other with nuclear technology that has never, ever happened before in the world. Uh, and we have all kinds of different things that go along with it that add to challenges, including nation states and social media and all of that. Um, but the fact of the matter is humans have never, ever uh, lived with dissolved borders uh, like they do in the age of nuclear technology. And we are not even 100 years into the advent of nuclear technology. Um, and you know, that's a much more important, interesting story that uh, sort of you know, it is the real story of America as a force for good throughout the Cold War. Um, and when you you don't have that, when you're so sort of myopic and think, you know, this is just, we're caught in the, you know, another 10-year cycle and, you know, we, we were so bad and blah, blah, blah. I, I just, for me even, and as like, you're obviously old, but for me as a, a young um, spry. spry. Yeah. As a young <laughs> spry person. Um, so I was born in 1993. So I'm 30. Um, I know you're probably in your mid fifties by now, but mm -hmm. All right. the, the, tender, going on 70. the tender age of 30, um, yeah, pre nine 11, but also in, I would say, maybe you disagree with this, but I would say the nineties are the sort of golden age of Pax Americana. That is the pinnacle of Pax Americana. Um, you know, we we had, I, I would say, a much better approach to race relations. We had a much healthier approach to all kinds of different things, speech, um, et cetera, et cetera. That was easier. All of this was sort of, it was easier to believe the, the larger narrative. Um, and we aren't really reckoning with that right now. I don't know. So I have a few points, maybe some of them objections to what you say uh, a little Broke bit. On. Um, the first is, uh, I agree with you. We have this, this vision of the nineties. Um, I, I think of it very much, uh, the metaphor that always pops into my head when I think about the nineties is, um, if you like throw a ball up in midair, um, and then take a photograph, you take a photo as it like crests up and you, you know, it, talking about the nineties is almost like, <laughs> you know, you threw the ball up, you took the picture and then you, you show the picture to someone and you say, we'll see like it stays up by itself, right? The, the 90s were a pinnacle of, of a trajectory um, that already had like a lot of the roots of what we're talking about, especially when we talk about um, indoctrination or we talk about, you know, what, what millennials and Gen Z have learned in school and so on. I think the part where I want to push back on um, what you're saying is, I think that is actually a story of decline and ignorance in terms of the concrete things that, that kids learn in school um, more than it is 
so this this sort of simplistic idea of American history, right? That doesn't include I don't know about the CIA killing John F. Kennedy, but uh, you know that doesn't include support for the Arena Party, for example, in in El Salvador, and and sort of dealing with whether it was right or wrong to support uh, a party that did you know a lot of violence and threw people in jail, right? Um, which the leftist party in El Salvador also did. Um, you know, I don't think I let's I, relitigate Iran Contra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, relitigate on contra. But um, you know, I I I I did not have textbooks uh in in high school that taught a unalloyed uh view of American history. In fact, even like A push, the A push standards, and this is you know, 2006, and they had been that way for a while. Um, are I've, actually I think it is a matter of proportion. They were incredibly heavy-handed on uh America's sins already. Right. Um, in terms of and, and this is where I think is, is missing in all of this is, is perspective about what, you know, what human beings do, what nations do. In some sense, this is a deeper, deeper philosophical divide um, between the constrained and the unconstrained vision. Right. The question is not has America behaved as a perfect angel in the world always. We knew this is not true. And our textbooks haven't taught that that's true, at least for for decades. I don't know if they did or not in the 50s. I haven't read enough 50s textbooks, but. Um, you know, uh, th th this, this has not been true, but the question is where you're counting from. Are you counting backwards from utopia or you right. count from a baseline, uh, that life is nasty, British and short, that, uh, human beings are tribal, that nations uh, act in their interests and sometimes incredibly brutally, um, Rousseau you know, versus Burke. Yeah. Right. And, and so I, that's, I think the problem here, because there, there is a certain element of like, oh, I, I wasn't taught this in school. Um, if you open the school textbooks already for de for generations, for a generation and a half in America, at, le at least, you open those textbooks, th the ugly parts of American history are there, sometimes very much exaggerated, uh, in, in not in fact, and, and this is where it becomes difficult to argue, right? Because it's not in fact, it's not that you say, okay, well, no, it's not true that we turn on the taps to the Aretta party. By the way, who did that? Jimmy Carter, actually. Um... <laughs> An American hero. Right. Um, no, but it's not that we didn't fund and uh, we gave funds to the Iran party, right? Um, that that point is, is uh, it's not a refusion of fact. It's a refusion of, of perspective and um, and larger sort of purpose and larger. Uh, it is like a question of, of, you know, is the civilization a good one? Um, yeah. And are, 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 so that I think is, 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 is it ultimately a, a matter of, of balance and and um and so and that's 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 the thing that makes these debates very difficult so if it's you have a textbook, if you have well, a textbook just one point then I'll, I'll turn it back over to you yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have a textbook like that says 100 chapters and i talked about this with batia right um if i'm talking about american history and i have 100 chapters um you know how many of them ought to be going uh to america turning on the tap to the arena party in my view that's a footnote uh Whereas the, the, the larger chapters are um, the, the creation of, of the Constitution, uh, the, the, you know, unique liberties that, uh, you know, starting with the Revolutionary War going forward. Um, slavery actually is the one American sin I think deserves a good several chapters, right? It, it defined the, the future of America in, in uh, a number of ways and then led to an incredibly bloody war of brother against brother. I, th I think that qualifies. But many of the other things um, that are massively exaggerated in importance 
of, of all of America's sins. Like the, the overall picture matters. You can get buried, as you say, in like this bad detail or that bad detail. Um, but what used to be clear is that the overall picture, this is the, this was a civilization worth being a part of, you know, worth being part of, of that, that project project towards a more perfect union. That perspective is gone. Um, and has been gone for, for decades. Reagan talked about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. And that's why, I mean, I think we do a really bad job with the Cold War in general, because that's where I see the sort of, the, the sort of Chomsky's and TikTok philosophers come in and, and harvest young minds is by like spreading, you know, Guatemala, but all of these different things. And I actually think the most important reasonable thing there is to talk about posing most of the deck in 1953 is another one, which I yep. actually am on the other side of, I think, I think it was the wrong call for the Americans to pose it, but so but, I get, but, like, I get like, a lot of argument in my family about that. I bet you do. Uh, but you know, like this is this stuff is like really, really, really powerful. And I think conservatives have underestimated what this has done to young people. Um, and I also think it's it's such a gateway drug to anti-Americanism. It is is maybe one of the biggest gateway drugs to anti-Americanism because it's so easy for the TikTok and Instagram philosophers and and YouTubers to come in and talk about this stuff and be like, but did you know? Um, but it is fundamentally the place where you lose perspective about, and, and I think this should be the title of your memoir, and as it was such a beautiful turn of phrase, counting backwards from utopia is the new slashing towards Bethlehem. You're, you're counting backwards from utopia uh, about how... Uh, I mean, like conservatives have talked forever about how we do a terrible job teaching the evils of communism, right? So it's not just like when we teach about Lumumba or we teach about Guatemala or we teach about El Salvador now, it's like, oh, America is, is so bad. Did you know this? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, we don't talk about Stalin. We don't talk about, you know, Lenin coming out and saying we are marching for global communism. Like this is about taking over every corner of the globe with evil, um, and we don't talk about how that sprang up because the Industrial Revolution produced some serious evils. We just kind of move past all of it and lose perspective. And I think part of that is just it, we're frogs in a boiling pot. Like it's happened really, really, really quickly. I also just think like uh, just the way that I... I sort of like fixate on trying to understand, you know, how people get from A to B and how people, you know, could can possibly have their mind um, at a place where they, you know, see America as having not the moral high ground versus Hamas, um, which seems, you know, unthinkable to a lot of people. Um, and it's it, to me, I think it's crazy. But uh, as I try to understand that, I do think this is just a glaring blind spot um, for conservatives at understanding that one-sided propaganda, um, and I don't mean, I mean one-sided anti-American propaganda is really powerful because American propaganda um, doesn't always account for some uh, you know different things that have easy explanations, but instead of dismissing them, they should be confronted. The more you're talking, the more I think this is really a problem of the loss of an authoritative narrative. This is what you're describing as a problem of autodidacts. Agree. Yep. Right. Um, and you can have some like very brilliant autodidacts. Uh, my husband just one. Don't let him hear that. 
Um, he'll get a big head, but you very know, brilliant. Uh, yes, the, the very um, brilliant. He, you know, basically taught himself, and you can see all these books behind me, and we have many, many more. Um, but it is difficult to be an autodidact because you exactly don't. You're 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 building um, from the ground up a knowledge, and therefore you're influenced by every little piece of knowledge without having the broader perspective. And I've noticed this over and over again with people who I consider um, really, you know, very very smart, like thoughtful people. Um, so for example, like somebody like Curtis Yarvin, right? He, he, you, you notice this more and more in how he looks at the world is that in, and Jarrett can sometimes point it out more than I can, cause he's read so many of these books, but, um, you'll notice that one thing he says about history is actually like very contested. Um, and there's more historical sort of evidence on the other side, but it's one of these points of history that's hotly contested, but he'll say it like fact, and it's because he got it from one particular book. Well, that book is, you know, reliant on a source um, that is like of dubious, for example, I'm just giving an example of this, of, of, of yeah. dubious authenticity, right? This is the, the, the problem with losing the academy, right? Because um, it actually takes more than than a single person building knowledge from ground up. Like you, in, you always are like too heavily influenced in some way by these little individual data points um, that you're collecting until you build like a larger worldview out of that. But there, there's a lot total loss of any authority to put a valence on all of these individual data points, which is not to say eliminate some in favor of others, right? Um, in, or to to Make, make up things or, or imaginary, but to, to connect a, a uh, an overarching perspective, to connect all of these little dots. And what happens often when people are, are finding their own dots, right, is that this sometimes, you know, suicidal over-reliance on things without a broader perspective around them on, on an individual fact of history or whatever. And, and it strikes me that this really is a problem of of losing the institutions and losing um, any authoritative, essentially what you need as a professor, right? <laughs> if you talk about this in the historical context, what you need is a professor that you trust, who's read everything there is to read in a given field that's going to say, you know, that source may be not so great to rely on, good at certain things, bad at certain things. That individual bullet point about the Arena Party, right? Um, comes in a larger context that includes all of these things and, you know, includes <laughs> the communist global domination push, right, from the Soviet Union. Um, and includes all these other things. But there is no one, both in the individual case of history, but in the broader case of, of uh, you know, American life, there is no one with that kind of trust um, and authoritative power that can get anywhere close to 70, 80, 90% of, of trust of people. And now you're seeing how a massive problem. This is almost like we've reverted to an earlier form of civilization where um, you only trust the little things that you read and the things that your neighbor told you and the things that, <laughs> like, because those are the things you can verify and everybody else is not worth trusting. Yeah. Um, and that also goes to losing the media, uh, which has been, you know, a, a complete disaster. Like if you look at some of the what, what, who who faked the study? This was like uh, the the hilarious academic study. Um, a couple of people did it. Well, it might have been James Lindsay, like more than five years ago. Oh yeah, it was. Um, yeah, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, or right. And yeah, I think it was involved in this too. They wrote some of the the like uh, feminist 
understanding of the dog park or rape in the dog park. Yes. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I'm not, if I'm remembering correctly, they also faked the media. Um, and even if I'm not remembering it correctly, they easily could have faked the media if they had pitched it around. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's uh, like there are enormous benefits to you know chipping away at the power of the gatekeepers, but you'll know, it, it's like this conundrum when I look at media trust, which just this month actually. Uh, the Gallup annual survey put media trust back at the historic low from 2016. And it's easy to kind of gloss over that because we know, of course, nobody trusts media. Of course, it's only going to be going down, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but if you think about what happened in 2016, um, you know, it's amazing that there haven't been improvements since hitting what was rock bottom for the media, missing a presidential election by like 99%, you know, saying we have 99% certainty that it's going to be Hillary Clinton and then having Hillary Clinton lose. Um, you know, that's, you know, people may take issue with the way I worded that mathematically, uh, but that's quite all right. Uh, the point is they, they really did hit that's rock bottom. because they're gatekeepers who cannot be trusted. Right. And I always think, you know, it's very, very good very, very good that we have low trust in media right now. Because if we had high trust in media right now, I would be terrified. If people you know, looked at what they're getting in the media, looked at reality and said, yes, I can trust this, then we would have an even bigger problem on our hands. But it's a huge problem that we have low trust in media. And the same is true with academia. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a disaster. And again, like one thing that I think about is uh, probably the only prescient piece that I have ever written uh, which is in March of 2020, like, welcome to the low trust pandemic, basically, like, enjoy the the pandemic with low institutional trust, like, literally, nobody's going to know who to believe. Uh, nobody is going to, you know, it, it was not a 9-11 moment for us at all. Uh, you know, there, there was no rallying around the flag, except for maybe a week, uh, because we all immediately were at each other's throats. We were all immediately uh, being served up disinformation by the purported gatekeepers of disinformation or, or good information uh, who were smearing people as bigots right out the gate, smearing people as extremists and crazies right out the gate, coming from the government, coming from big business. Uh, and it was just a total disaster. So on the one hand, like it's it's good. Um, you know, like, it, but I find myself just to go back to the Cold War thing, like briefly, like, it, you know, it, the Washington Post as of like 10 years ago had a, a really funny story. I guess it's not funny about how CIA funded textbooks encouraging jihad. Uh, we're still in madrasas in Afghanistan. You know, these are textbooks from the 80s, essentially, that you can look at and be like, well, this, this probably did help radicalize some people in Afghanistan. Uh, and as wrong as I think our policy, as crazy as I think that is, the same time it's like, what the hell were we supposed to do? <laughs> what were we supposed to do in the 1980s? Uh, you know, I, again, like, do I think a lot of that policy was a mistake? Yes. Do I envy the people who had to make those decisions? Absolutely freaking not. Um, there, this is like, a, th there's a battle between, you know, Western civilization and the rest that is raging. The end of history was never reached. And we have completely lost our perspective on how serious and dire it is. And all of these new technologies are making it so much worse than it was in the 1980s. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a good segue to another topic I wanted to talk to you about, which is if we factor in what we've been talking about so far is really this toxic mix of ideology and, and technological change. Um, but one of the correctives on that is 
you know, talking to people, right? Um, there, there is this sort of common sense corrective when you, when you speak to enough people, um, that, that you get a sense, which is why, for example, Israel is constantly like paying for essentially, um, trips for everyone influential that they could possibly think of, right. Uh, to go and visit Israel because, uh, it, it, you know, they, they, they believe that putting someone on the ground, um, to talk to people will actually change their minds in a way that nothing else can and, and impress some realities. Like for example, how small the country is, which I'm pretty sure if you ask the average, I don't know, I wonder if there've been studies done about this, but if you ask the average American, like how big Israel is, I'm, I guarantee you, like they would come up with something 20 or 50 times bigger, right. Um, then, then the reality of, of Israel, um, which is the same with uh, de- like uh, the killings of unarmed, unarmed police killings of unarmed black right. men. The studies on that's that are mind-boggling. By the way, similar uh, this one, I do know that there are polls on um, Americans underestimate by a factor of three or four how much money we spend in public schools. Uh, very, very consistently, the teachers' union has been very, very effective in convincing people um, that we are underfunding American schools, um, but. You know, usually talking to people is, is a corrective, not always, but um, it can give some perspective. Adding to the sort of trust and autodidact problem, I think, that we were discussing is the fact that people just don't spend any time with each other anymore. Um, that almost all of our interactions are selected through this valence of, of um, technology and social media. So there's this really um, disturbing graph. It was on, uh, I think it was on Jonathan Haidt's blog. Um, originally, but it, it comes from uh, a study uh, by Kanan uh, and VZ. This is 2013, uh, sorry, 2023, um, analyzing American time use. So these are the, 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 there is a big American time use study. It asks um, all kinds of, of things. It, it asks, I think it's connected to the census even, um, and asks a random selection, a very large random selection of Americans how to block out how they spend their time. This is how we have a lot of info on the NEETS, the so-called NEETS, right? The neither education or educational training, right? Um, Neither, neither education employed or training, employment or training. Um, so this is like a time use study, and it shows that there has been an absolute collapse in time spent with friends in real life. Um, and it's most pronounced uh, between the ages of 15 and 24, because, of course, uh, once you're, you know, talking about 25 to 64-year-olds, um, obviously other things intervene. You have family, you have work, employment, right? So, like, it wouldn't, it's not as even though they have dropped as well. So ages 25 to 34 um, has gone from roughly 60 minutes a day in 2003 um, to just over 20 in 2020, right? So this is, I mean, it's, that's pretty dramatic in itself, you know, going from an average of an hour spent with friends a day to an average of 20 minutes in over the course of um, just just under two decades is, is pretty uh, astounding in itself. But the most overwhelmingly... Um, biggest slope downward is among uh, kids 15 to 24 going from uh, almost 160 minutes per day. So that would be what, like um, three and a half, two and a half hours. <laughs> not, not, not a great, not a great mathematical podcast, this one. Um, almost two and a half hours all the way down to basically below where people in their 30s were uh, in, in 2003, um, all the way down to close to 40 minutes a day. Uh, spent in real life with friends. And um, that's where it gets and, really easy to project. And this off before the pandemic, by the way. So this goes to 2020. So it's it's worse now. 
it gets really easy to project caricatures onto other people that way. Like it gets really easy to uh, project the caricature of uh, racism and white supremacy and bigotry onto, uh, you know, your Trump voting neighbor when you haven't been barbecuing with them or you've only done it once and it was super uncomfortable because you were checking your phone the whole time. <laughs> like it just, it, the social fabric is just completely breaking down. Um, and as much as like nuclear technology, I mean, it's nuclear technology and social media that are like the two things that loom over these silly political discussions that we have every single day and are rarely ever mentioned. Um, and they, they have all of these downstream consequences, you know, some things that were happening, by the way, before nukes and before social media, um, you know, there, some of the stuff would be happening anyway. It's just, you know, the, it's how history works. Uh, technology is inextricably inter intertwined with history. There's no such thing as human history without technology. It's what we do. We're, you know, in intelligent animals <laughs> and we uh, create, um, but, and we, you know, try to make our lives better and we try to trade and et cetera, et cetera, feed our families and propagate the species. So all of this is going to happen naturally. Um, but these two things uh, in particular are the sort of root explanations for so much and we never talk about them honestly um that's those numbers you just sort of terrifying like i don't even I, every time i think i understand gen how z how does a 15 year old kid end up spending less than an hour with friends a day i, I really don't like know how i mean i remember like so in high school one of my friends lived basically across from our high school um behind the the custard shop which is a great location but we would walk over there after school and a lot of times we would just, you know, we're 14, 15, we would sit on the couch and, you know, drink Coke and, and watch or eat Chex Mix and, and watch movies and TV. Uh, you know, it wasn't every day. A lot of times we'd be like you know, doing our thing, like sports practices, whatever else, but that's what we would do. And like, that was bad enough, right? Like imbibing that much TV and, and junk food, like that's bad enough. One time, and I'm not making this up, we were so lazy that we left the Mamma Mia DVD on repeat three times. I watched Mamma Mia three times one afternoon as like a 16 year old. Um, but <laughs> that's a fun anecdote. Uh, but, um, you know, that was bad enough. And now I can't, you know, that, that was still me spending five hours with friends, you know, probably from like four to 9 PM. Like that's a totally different, as bad as that is, you're sitting there with friends, talking, enjoying yourselves, joking, laughing, gossiping, whatever it is. Um, and it just, it, as bad as that is taking that away and putting that all onto phones horrifies me. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm also like kind of in shock with that with that number as bad as, I mean, we've talked about it before, decline in friendship, decline in, in real life interaction. I mean, this is the top two factors in longevity after 65, by the way. Um, this really impressed me. This is a, one of the few TED Talks I've ever found remotely um, interesting or worth worth remembering anything from that I've ever watched. But uh, the, the two biggest factors um, – in longevity after 65 are uh, time spent with close family and friends. And the second one, almost as important, uh, is time interacting with people who are not your close family and friends, but interactions with other human beings, the guy at the checkout counter, you know, uh, meeting somebody, a neighbor, 
in the yard. Um, these these kinds of like brief interactions that aren't don't rise to close friendships or, or family, but but uh, are nevertheless one human being interacting with another. Both of those things by factors, several factors like of ten, um, blew out of the water. Things like heavy drinking and drug use. Obviously, those things, we know those things are really bad for you and they affect longevity. So imagine like not having friends and not interacting with people is several times worse for you. Sorry, I misspoke about the factor of 10, but um, several times worse for you uh, in terms of, of death, of mortality, um, than heavy drinking or drug use. And it's not surprising. Not watching on the... On the uh, on the YouTube, she's just she's shoved, she's throwing up her shoulders in despair. It's not surprising. I mean, I, it's not surprising, and it's it's one of these things that we took for granted. And I think there are a lot of things that we took for granted um, until like maybe the last ten years, and that's when people were slack jawed throughout the summer of twenty. They took for granted a very fragile piece. Um, you know that this stuff had not yet completely erupted. Uh, they took for granted that. You know, they were sending their kids like, oh, it's okay. Like those schools are liberal, um, but they've got good names. So I'll send my kids there. I'll pay for it. Um, you know, I'll, the, the public school, I know that teacher's a crazy lib. Um, you know, I'm going to tell my kid, you know, the true history and when we're going to watch The Patriot <laughs> and, uh, you know, not Ridley Scott, whatever else. And it's a little Napoleon humor for everyone out there. Uh, but I have heard that is just appallingly bad. Everyone oh. know who has seen that. Have you seen that? I haven't. I've heard the same thing. I can't though. bring myself to watch it. But yeah, I've heard the same thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it, it, we just took for granted so much that fell apart in the span of you know maybe five years post Trump. That just sort of was the moment that everyone uh, dropped their pretenses and things got really crazy. Um, although at the same time, you know, we're still existing at a level of peace and prosperity that has you know, never existed in human history. So it's easy to take that for granted, too, because who knows when the hell that will be gone? <laughs> yeah, there really is this sense of um, of impending something, some sort of big cataclysmic war, uh, both because of the combination of, of sort of small fires that are around the world um, and because and, and like our own obvious lack of preparedness for it um I, I don't know if you saw the 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 story or the the army first of all of course now that tensions are rising around the world they've uh released a recruiting video with actual white men in it which is how you know that they're really serious um <laughs> about, about uh trying to get recruiting back to normal numbers um, they also sent out a letter to everyone they had uh, separated from the military based on vaccine mandates uh essentially in no in sort of Weasley bureaucratic terms, begging them to to come back to to the service, um, and, and so I don't know. There, there really are a lot of indications um, that now nothing is certain. History isn't isn't linear, and nothing is certain. But it, it does certainly seem like we are in the calm before the storm in some some big way. Um, but I, I as, hope, as of yet undetermined. I hope you're drafted first. <laughs> no, I hope Rachel Bovard is drafted first. <laughs> I think right I now. think Rachel might be out of the. I'm not yet out of the drafting age. Oh, that's right. You guys are old. I keep forgetting. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's no, easy I, to forget. I, I don't know if it's what is it like 38, 39. I'm not yet that old. I don't know. So I'm we're still we're we're still in the in the nice drafting range. 
Oh, by the way, this is a total aside, but it really annoys me in in uh, in the U.S. when we talk about like we always hear about the drafting women, right? As and we say, well, the Israeli military does it. Um, yes, uh, Israel Israel is a very small country surrounded by this is a factor of ten or more, right? Uh, in terms of of the manpower that can be brought against it, uh, what what they do out of necessity is not the standard by which. America should conduct our, our affairs, by the way. Um, anyway, that, that, that's just a, a useless aside. But I, I did want to actually close out on one more depressing topic. You'll be shocked to uh, to hear that this is, this is not uplifting. But I, I really was thinking, um, we've now had almost a decade of populist backlash to all of this, right? Um, here at home, obviously, we had the election of Trump. Uh, we've had successive sort of populist backlash goals, um, including about education, the Moms for Liberty, right? A great group highly support their work and what they do. Um, Parents defending education. Like we've had this parent backlash, right? Uh, We've won a few elections out of it. Um, Then, you know, if you look abroad, obviously like sort of country after country has had some kind of kick in the teeth from rising populism, right? Um, whether that's that's Brexit in the UK, whether that's the most recently, um, Geert, Geert Wilders was elected in the Netherlands, right? He's the majority party now in the Netherlands. Um, Javier, don't forget Javier. Don't forget Javier. I was thinking about Europe, but uh, there's also Maloney in Italy, right? Um, and out of all of those parties, immigration has been a theme um, and far from the only theme. I mean, especially Geert, Geert Wilders, I say his name, Wilders. Um, Wilders would be the American. Anyway, um, you're the he, I've been quasi European. <laughs> yeah, I've been reading him for a long time. And I mean, he he was almost Prussian and in, in sort of talking about the equivalent of a ruling class. Um, He's sort of Boris Johnson-y, right? I don't know enough about Boris Johnson, honestly, to tell you. But he he is um, he has not just been talking about immigration, but about sovereignty, about the the um, difference between the population and the elites. Uh, he's quite economically uh, left, actually, um, which is interesting because he's going to form a uh, coalition with the conservative government um, or other conservative parties. So we'll see how his economic views shake out. Um, anyway, uh, or, or here, I think another person who fits in this category, right, is Le Pen um, and, and her success. She did not win, of course, but, um, you know, came came damn closer than than she had in recent years. And that party much, much more powerful than than it was 10 years ago. That being said, on this central issue of immigration, as far as I can tell, there has not been a single country that has substantially altered its uh, trajectory of its immigration. Right. Trump did some executive order things around, you know, started to try to enforce some of the law that we have. But fundamentally, the law that we have um, invites, as you have chronicled so well, um, you've gone to the border and, you know, the, the fact that we have the, the way that our asylum law is set up, the way that our court system and court decisions are set up, um, the, the legal infrastructure in place, uh, even if one were to build a wall, um, you know, you still have droves of people surrendering to Border Patrol uh, to take advantage of, of the American asylum system here. So there has not been a breakthrough on immigration and all those things, of course, were reversed by the incoming Biden administration. Um, Maloney has not been able to do much about the influx of migrants into Italy, um, including in that, was that like, was it, was it an Italian island that basically like just got taken over by many times the, the number yes. of residents? Um you have, I mean, we'll, oh, you we'll know, what? it if, may have been Greek. 
It may have been Greek. Yeah. Fake news. Yeah, I don't know. It's possible. Yes. I I only have a vaguest recognition or recollection of that story. Um, no, but it just it you know migrant migrant patterns have gone up to Europe. Um, in, in you know there was a high point I think in 2017. It dipped down for a while, but now it's back up. Right. Like it doesn't seem like there's a lot of actual W's on the board, despite now almost a, a decade of backlash. Um, to even this one policy, let alone like sort of the broader power of, of elites or the EU or super, you know, supranational structures or, um, or in the, in this country, the power of the deep state, right? Like, it, I'm sorry. It's just like, when I look back at it and say that, that these have been the quote unquote outsiders have been winning for 10 years and where's, where's the, the actual shift on this issue or is it impossible? Yeah. I mean, that's a uh, uh, th there's a shift, I guess, in the sense that here in the States, Biden is so deeply embarrassed in a political sense and ashamed in a political sense, not in a moral sense, but in a political sense by his immigration policy that they are now rigging the numbers to make it appear as though less people are coming in, which I guess is obviously an indication that uh, the public sentiment is not kids in cages level um, because that media narrative has sort of been punctured post-Trump. Uh, actually, in fact, the kids in cages narrative in and of itself did a lot to puncture that, uh, in a meta sense, that larger narrative, because people were like, wait a second, this was happening under Obama and you didn't tell us? Uh, what does that mean? And you know, how inhumane are we? Blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I mean, I think... Um, that's, but that goes to the same sort of vicious cycle you're just describing. It's that sentiment, public sentiment can shift in different directions to the point where you get Javier Millet in Argentina winning the largest margin of victory since Argentina became a democracy uh, in like the 1980s. Like since then, Millet has the highest, uh, even though he doesn't have the Congress, he got the highest 55% of the vote. That's a, a pretty good margin of victory. Uh, that's a pretty good slice of the voting population in Argentina and, and the whole population in Argentina. But what becomes of it if you don't have Congress? What becomes of it if you don't have the institutions? And that's where I think, and as the hope, I know a lot of people here in DC and a lot of people that you know in general are working right now on policy infrastructures for the right, for the center um, to kind of correct some big errors in public policy that there's probably public support for correcting. Uh, I know people are working on that. I think it is a much longer term question of um, the the public sentiment on these issues. Like I, I'm not remotely surprised that there hasn't been any change in, although that was like, it's actually kind of, to some extent, it's surprising when you laid it out like that, like it's actually closed their borders, um, you know, and, and people would, the sort of Chomskyites would say, well, it's hard to close your borders when you're bombing Syria and Afghanistan and, uh, you I think you spend too much time with Ryan Grimm and <laughs> no, but that is what they would say. And and to some extent, by the way, that's fair. I mean, we did, you know, create some of these these issues. Um, 
but then we also worsened the issues uh, with immigration policy. So anyway, all that is to say. What um, if I told you millions of people would want to immigrate to the economic zone formerly known as the United States of America, regardless of America's position foreign policy-wise on bombing Syria? What if? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Uh, you, if we didn't sanction Cuba, I wonder if anyone would actually want to come here. Uh, the Cubans would all just be content in Cuba. Uh, no, I mean, th- yeah, that stuff's obviously ridiculous. But I, I actually think this is the only thing that I have hope in at this point is the long term, uh, my long term faith and common sense in you know, Republican systems of government. And that's not foolproof because uh, one person who notably defeated that would be Adolf Hitler. Uh, and obviously, you know, our system of Republican government and a lot of systems of Republican government in the West are, are much stronger uh, than, you know, that that time period in, in Germany. But uh, and partially because there was learning from that time period in Germany. But, um, you know, the, the, some of this has to win out. Men and women has to win out. Uh, you know, the, the, this it, it, it may take longer uh, for us to get to policy victories than it should on things like girls and women's sports. Um, but, I, you know, you, you may not even have policies, need have a need for policies if we can return to a place of consensus on some of these questions of common sense. And that sounds fantastical and, far sense, or, or, and, and far-fetched, I think, in some ways. But it's, it's really my only hope at this point because some of these things, you, know, you just have to, you have to believe that the American people uh, will come to the right right place when it comes to, uh, for example, women's sports or locker rooms and bathrooms where the public is much more divided. I have, I have faith in the American people in some sense, although I I do, as I said in the debate I had the last podcast um, with Batya, I mean, American public consensus can be moved by elite institutions and has been moved by elite institutions over time. But I, I, you know, I certainly have more, more faith in the common sense of the average American voter than I have in our current institutions. The problem is that those institutions that are influenced by populism and democracy are themselves sclerotic and less powerful than they have been basically in our history. So if you think about Congress is functionally, all Congress does functionally is jam everything into one bill called an omnibus. <laughs> that is That is really all they do. Um, yeah. They're not capable. Uh, they have some other functions, quote unquote, oversight. They might be able to get a thing or two into a hostile media. Um, but functionally, that that is what they do. Um, mm-hmm. The president is also completely hemmed in by the the, the administrative state uh, that operates largely without presidential control or direction. Um, we saw that very clearly under Trump. Right. Um, over in Europe, you have the EU, you have um you know, basically these managerial and bureaucratic structures have proven way more powerful and durable than backlash. And radical. What, I'm, what I'm saying is, is that yeah. they can endure very high uh, negatives among voters for a mm-hmm. long time. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe they can't endure 20 years. Maybe they can only endure 10 years. Like, over time, people get more and more ticked off. I mean, obviously, some of the things that Chris Rufo has, has been doing, right? If, if that is channeled into institutional change, um, if that backlash is channeled into institutional change, then, you know, I do think, I still think we have a have a shot. I'm not, like, completely blackpilled on this. But when I look back at the last, even on this one issue of immigration, right, look back at the last nine years of populist backlash in, you know, dozens of countries, 
And I don't see any actual change in the flow and migrations of peoples. That's why I think Not, the I mean, central question, uh, and this is where like the Douglas Murrays of the world come in, is the, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, it, it, but the, the central question, just as you were saying that, it struck me like the biggest question is the goodness of the West. Um, you know, if, if we can win that battle of common sense, uh, the fundamental goodness of the West. And I don't mean, uh, you know, having this battle about, you know, Martin Luther uh, versus the Pope. I don't mean having this battle about, you know, whether you're a, a Douglas Murray or, you know, a religious, uh, you know, pro-Western Catholic, whatever it is. Uh, but if we can fundamentally agree that Western civilization is good, uh, I will have so much more, you know, I don't mean it doesn't have to be 100% consensus, but if we can basically all be on the same page about that, I have much more faith that everything else falls into place, but it hinges on that. And there's a good chance that doesn't win out. I think you're right. Like, I, I just agree with everything you say. Like, I, I'm not optimistic. Uh, I just like to the extent that I can be, it's that there is a lot of logic and common sense that like the the good argument is a good argument. We will know that we have reached a more optimistic place in the West when Noam Chomsky is universally or near universally reviled. I agree. <laughs> no, I, I do. Getting Emily, Emily in trouble. No, I assign Chomsky uh, to the NJC students on foreign on the way that the media covers wars as a sort of provocation, as Camille Paul manufactured would say. consent yeah. back. Um, Anyway, uh, just trying to get Emily in trouble with that last uh, last it's remark there, but um, we've come to the end of our hour. <laughs> Emily, thank you, as always, for taking the time out to talk to us once a month here on High Noon. Um, we'll see Emily again in, I guess, the the end of the year. So we can wow. do, we can do a, a, some kind of, I don't know, I'll think about it, some kind of backwards-looking thing, some kind of forwards-looking thing. Forward at this point is, is getting real depressing. So Maybe um, a High Noon gift guide. Maybe you should do that. <laughs> <laughs> where emily drops noam chomsky and all of your yes. <laughs> stockings for christmas yes and and just sort of various fashion items that i know will really upset you like my ikea bucket hat mm -hmm. yeah and uh, how about this it'll be it'll be a christmas gift guide from me and a fashion uh yeah. fashion advice from emily so we'll just reverse our <laughs> I, th I think that's for the best yeah <laughs> all right um well emily thanks for, so much for, for spending the hour with us once again thanks it is and thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. We'll be brave and we'll see you next time on High Noon.